Good morning, everybody. If you will turn with me to two uh, scriptures, <clears throat> first in Acts chapter 1, and then we will just go over to the next chapter, Acts chapter 2. In Acts, the first chapter, <clears throat> we will just begin in verse 3. In Acts 1, 3, well, I probably ought to just begin with 1, and we'll read through 8, and then we'll go to chapter 2. The first account I composed... Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Real quick, verse 1, Theophilus is apparently an official, a benefactor, um, who commissioned, as it were, Luke to write personally for him what we know as the gospel according to Luke. And he mentions Theophilus in the first verses of the gospel of Luke. It's apparent that Theophilus was an early, new believer and so wanted a, an accurate history of the ministry of Jesus. So the response then um, was Luke, and Luke wrote Acts, and so... This is why he, is, he refers to the first account. That's the book of Luke. And then he is adding now this really, this is the history book of the New Testament. It begins at the ascension of Jesus and goes really till um, probably 62. So about 30 years he covers um, of early church history in Palestine, and then as Paul made his missionary journeys through the Mediterranean basin. Now, <clears throat> verse 3, To these, the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, <clears throat> gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father promised, which, he said, you heard from me. The, word, the wording here, heard from me, is continually. You kept hearing this from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth." <clears throat> now over to chapter 2, verse 1. This we know is now ten days later from what we just read. 
when the day of Pentecost had come. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance or prompting them and enabling them to speak. <coughs> we'll end there and just summarize that the people were gathered together with all this commotion and they asked, well, they were trying to figure out what's going on here. One group asked, what is this? Another group said, we don't know, we don't care, they're just drunk. That prompted then Peter to stand and give his sermon, which we'll not read. We don't have enough time to do it. But just those first verses, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They had tongues of fire on their head. And there was a mighty rushing wind sound that filled the entire house. Today's Pentecost Sunday. It marks this day. And so I want to look first, kind of briefly, we see here what the apostles received and what their enablement was. Peter preached this great sermon but more than just the apostles, I want to focus as much as we can on what this means for all of us. We're not apostles. We're just people. Okay? Now, they were too, but they were specially selected to be not only the preachers, the spreaders of this good news, but they were to be the authors of the New Testament. And it's we, so we, this day, we rely on the words of those men. And they have a place then that is in one sense, they're human and the same needs that they had, we have. They needed forgiveness, they needed to be filled with the Spirit. But lest it seem like it's a, an apostolic level of Christianity, this is for everyone. This is for us all. And so I want to look at what is involved for all of us with this pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon us. First, there's a promise. Jesus says that <clears throat> they will receive the promise of the Father, he said, which I have been telling you about. So they were aware of it. The promise of the Father, the promise of the Father, of course, is the giving of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, in a new and special relationship with us. Further, this promise assumes, anytime something is a promise, it assumes, implies, faith. 
the only way I can ever receive anything that is promised, it assumes, is by faith. A promise calls for faith. So we know that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on each of us is only obtainable, and I don't mean to split hairs, but I'm not using the word attain. Attain is a climbing wall. You work your way up. You don't attain works of grace. You don't attain forgiveness. You don't attain the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You obtain it by faith. It is a gift, promise given to me. So that's a sharp, necessary distinction that we have to make. But we have a promise that the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us going back literally thousands of years through the prophets and through the law. And finally it comes to pass and we mark it today. The second thing then <clears throat> that we see in this short passage specifically in chapter 2 is power. We receive power. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, let me talk to you for a second about what does that mean, power? Well, the danger of being pulled off into an error is to misinterpret the meaning of power. Yes, Peter stood up and preached such a sermon that the people who heard it said back to him, we are cut in half. What shall we do? That's power. But that's to some degree. It's not entirely unavailable to the rest of us, but that was apostolic power in that particular day. It also says <coughs> that the apostles worked, it said, many signs and wonders and miracles and works of power. And it specified some of them, that people were healed and so forth. I don't know anybody here, including myself, that has ever laid hands on someone and they have been able to walk having been born unable to walk and they're 40 years old. Anybody want to come to the front and tell us about it? That's never happened to any of us. I've never laid hands on a blind person and they've been able to see. Well, then we don't have the Holy Spirit. No, there's some of this apostolically that was particular for that inaugural initiative and introduction of the Holy Spirit's dispensation. Some of those things not, may not have passed away, but they're still today. They're quiet. 
How many of us have prayed? Maybe along with others. Lord, please touch so-and-so and heal them. And that person, through whatever means, might have been doctors, but it was still God. But they have been touched and they're well. Now, any of you participate in that? Of course you have. That's no less than what Peter and James and John and Paul, a late apostle, were able to do. It's, there were some inaugural signs here that we need to look at and understand them. And this power is the first one. You see, power came first in the form or in the symbol of a rushing mighty wind that filled the whole house. That power, I want to maybe leave us with this. That power is a power to be before it's a power to do. A.W. Tozer talked about the rush that we have, especially in the conservative churches, for winning the lost. And I don't want to say, well, I'm opposed to winning the lost. I'm not opposed to winning the lost. Okay? <clears throat> but Tozer was right. It's more important to first be, and he said we have to be qualified to be witnesses. That means I've got to have a credible life before I can verbally talk to someone and explain Scripture to them and testify to them and maybe lead them to the Lord. It, I can't do that until first I'm empowered to be different. It's a condition of heart that results from the second sign that was given Power was the first. Power to be and then power to do. Power to live. Power to say yes to God in the current that we have going against us. Power to say no to temptation in this wicked world. Power to walk victoriously in this world. But the power to do is never present until the power has worked in me to be, to make me different. That's the critical thing. We're always humans. And, you know, frankly, I think Americans are probably worse as far as Christians go. We are always trying to leapfrog over the, the necessities that God lays out in steps. We want to get to the doing I think that's part of our culture. And really, it works against us. Because we, we want to be all about tearing up the place. And God's not. And here's the thing. Here's us and our culture, our impatient, demanding culture. And here's God. Who do you think the heat's on change <laughs> he's not going to change I can, I can guarantee it God isn't going to change here's another quote from A.W. Tozer 
God will never bow to our nervous haste. Never. We are the ones that will learn to wait, to be patient. And many times, here's another American thing, let God work and prepare a heart before we say anything. Proverbs says, the preparation of the heart and the answer of the tongue is of the Lord. And it's in that order. The Holy Spirit prepares a heart. And then, as if God really needs us, then he says, okay, now I'll open the door, having already prepared their heart. And you can tell them what, as one of the Psalms says, come in here and I'll tell you what he's done for my soul. That's the quiet work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how many times. And I think the, how can I say it? The, the light heart, if God has any lighthearted, humorous thoughts, when we get in front of him and kind of short circuit what he's trying to do, I think his humorous, well, he's doing his best, he's trying, wears out pretty fast. Because he says, keep your mouth shut until I tell you. I know what I'm doing, you don't. How many times has our nervous haste short-circuited the preparation of the heart that sometimes takes forever? And let me encourage you with this, if you're as impatient as I am. Let me encourage you with this. God took... As long, we're not certain, but God took likely about 50 years to get to Jacob's heart and open his eyes that he needed God. And that, was, that experience took place at a place called Bethel, which he named House of God. He said, God's here, and I didn't even know it. He entered into a new found relationship with God. And then God put up with and prepared Jacob's heart for 20 more until finally he wrestled with the angel and the angel said to Jacob, finally, he said, you tell me your name. And he knew what his name was. The angel was God. He knew what his name was. He said, I want you to admit to my face what your name is, meaning what, what are you? Who are you? What's your character? And he said, Jacob, which means heel grasper, deceiver, trickster, shifty, one literally who comes along behind and trips you. That's what the word Jacob means. And God, it took God then. 50 years to get him to recognize God and another 20 to finally say, down deep here, I tricked my brother Esau out of the birthright 
I'm a, I am a schemer. That's what I am. Well, now I haven't got 70 years. <laughs> I recognize we can say Jacob lived to be 147. Okay? Now, none of us... So let's just say since our lifespan's half of that, still you're looking at 35 years of a current lifespan to try to get to somebody's heart. That's hard. But the power that God gave them then that we have, can have today is the power to pray, walk with God, trust in God, keep praying, and then pray, and then pray, and then pray, and keep quiet, maybe, and let Him work. Because we know we have a simple little promise Jesus gave us. I am working, and my Father's working. He's never not up to something. So the idea that Ah, God's not doing anything. I better. Is not only unbelief, but it leads to certain failure and messing things up. The power to be, then, second or third, the tongues of fire that sat upon everyone's head is a clear sign. John the Baptist referred to it. He said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire is everywhere in Scripture, a symbol of purging away, of the melting down of metal and the burning off of dross so that you're left with pure silver or pure gold. It's what it always represents. So the tongues of fire that incidentally, it said, separated and sat on each one of them means every single one of them both needed a purged heart but received it. That's the core of the work of the Holy Spirit filling my heart in a personal Pentecost. Purity from what? Purity, remember this, purity is always accomplished by subtraction, never by addition. Pure, if you have, I've given you this illustration before. If, if we have 10 gallons of water with one gallon of sewage in it, it's not pure. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll just add a whole bunch of pure water, 500 gallons, 10,000 gallons. Now we've got 10,000 gallons of pure water and one gallon of sewage. That's not pure. And it'll never get pure by the addition of new pure water. What am I saying? The teaching that we are purified gradually by the continual addition of grace is bogus. The only way you achieve, or God does is by removing whatever it is that is polluting. And that's the remaining sinful nature. We're born with it. 
We are impure until the Holy Spirit in fire burns that out of our hearts. And then we're clean. So the tongues of fire sitting on everyone's head, symbol of purity. So there's a promise in this. There's power in this. There's purity in Pentecost. Then there's a purpose. We could say proclamation too. Because the third initial sign of Pentecost was speaking in other languages. And now in my version and most of ours, it says they spoke in other tongues. Okay? I'm not going to get too far off the subject, but I am going to touch on it. It's too bad that we use the word tongues instead of the Greek word says languages. Because tongues has taken on a connotation today that is not merited here. Generally, tongues are unintelligible, non-human, I guess you'd say languages, but they're really not. Anything that is unintelligible is not a language. These were not unintelligible languages because we have 15, 15 nationalities and regional people that are laid out here. Medes, Parthians, Cretans, so forth. Fifteen of them. Right as we get to the end. In fact, um, beginning in verse 8, they're amazed and they say, How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And do you know what the word language here is? This is also too bad it isn't literally translated. It's dialect. Dialect is more defined as a regional kind of a language. So take English. We ha- English is a language. I don't even know how many dialects, little subdivisions of English we have in our language in America. We try, you know, there's Minnesota, you know, um, North Dakota. There's like, which is Southern California. (laughs) It's the only thing. That's the only word they have. Well, like. You go to the south. You go all over the place. Michigan's got their own. Indiana's got their own. That's the word they used We hear in our own local dialect the wonderful words of God. That's not unintelligible language. That's not a more formal term. That's not what's called ecstatic utterance. It's not unknown tongues. Period. No place in Scripture is speaking in an unintelligible language ever endorsed by God. Period. 
Is it mentioned? Of course. As a massive problem in the Corinthian church that Paul corrected. There's a common rule of biblical interpretation. It's generally acknowledged by everybody. If it isn't, it should be. Difficult passages to understand regarding a certain subject are always interpreted through the prism of clear interpretive cases of that same subject. Okay? 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 is difficult to understand. It's not impossible at all. But it's difficult. This isn't. This lists the dialects in which they are. This is human language. My missions professor in seminary was a rookie on the mission field and was caught in a place where the veteran missionary he went with got some sudden sickness. They were way out in the bush in, I think it was Rhodesia, which I don't even think Rhodesia's got a different name now, but anyway. He stuck out there in the middle of nowhere, doesn't know the language, and the missionary who was to preach was probably food poisoning, very suddenly ill. God gave him the language of, I think it was Swahili. Never learned it, knew it, preached in it, and always retained it. Now that's Acts 2. Got no problems with it. That's Acts 2. That's the Bible. Gift of tongues. It is not ecstatic utterance and unintelligible language. Now, so when it says they were able to proclaim the, the purpose God would ever give someone the gift of language is that they might be able to understand the gospel in their own language because that's what we have here. So, there's an overall purpose and that is that we be witnesses. Jesus said, you'll receive the Holy Spirit and you will be witnesses to me in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the other most parts of the world. That's our purpose as Christians to testify to what he has done for my soul. And that is 99% of the time quiet, sane, common. Even if you have not yet had the opportunity to speak to someone, the crew, the office, wherever you are, you take a spirit-filled person and you put them into that spot. It isn't that long until everybody there senses there's something different about this person. There's something I haven't seen before. They have a poise, a power to go through suffering, 
to be resilient in hard times. They don't go to pieces and start beating on stuff and cussing. There's something different here. That's the kind of witness. I think we've all heard the statement that we're to always witness for Jesus and occasionally, if necessary, do it with your mouth. (laughs) And listen, there's nothing worse. I mean this. In the whole realm of the things of God, there's nothing worse than someone trying to witness with their mouths that doesn't have a life to back it up. So they fundamentally have no credibility. There's nothing worse than that. There's nothing more damaging to the kingdom of God than that. Quick story. When I was probably, I don't know, 17 or 18, far, far, far away from God, I had two people come up to me right after the service um, in Eugene. My dad had preached and I think some people gone to the altar, what I can't remember. So it was a good day. And I had two people come up to me and tell me almost verbatim the same words. I, I, this was so vivid. I had, I had a um, woman come up to me, known ever since I was a little kid. She came up to me, kind of just found me and got right up to me and says, I'm praying for you. I don't know what there was about it. <laughs> But I thought, you know, I, you're not supposed to hit a woman, but boy, it just rubbed me, you know, because it was one of these, I'm praying for you. You need it. I probably took 10 steps. Al Warkentine was in heaven today, railroad guy, worked on my car, helped me with stuff, and he just walked up beside me he just put his arm around my shoulder and kind of hugged me in a little bit. He says, love you, Dad. He said, I've been praying for you. Oh, that shot my heart. It was just like an arrow. I felt shame. I, I, I had to hurry out so I didn't show tears because, hey, I'm cool. You know, that was my highest calling in life. One had the Spirit. The other didn't. It's a vast difference. And sometimes I'm sure the woman that talked to me never even knew the effect it had on me and never knew how empty she really was. That's our purpose. That's why God gave, and what he meant, in giving the gift of languages that, it, that we would go to the world with the good news. Finally, underlying all this, of course, is the constant presence of the Holy Spirit. That, again, the apostles enjoyed, but so do we. When our hearts are filled with the Holy Spirit, God's wonderful presence is with us. As Jesus said, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. We'll notice a couple things here in, if, as we go through. If you read through the whole book of Acts, there's one place just ahead, and I think it's 
chapter 3 or 4. They're still in Jerusalem. And it makes this statement. It says, Wonderful, mighty works and healings and so forth were done by the apostles, and great grace was upon them all. Now, there's a thought here. It was a select group temporarily that had the power to heal and so forth. But not everybody had that. Not every single Christian filled with the Holy Spirit on that day went out and healed their next door neighbor. But everybody had great grace. That's the gift of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Deep, peaceful grace. Grace of God that changes our moods, our attitudes, our outlook, and you don't even have to say anything. Great grace was upon them all. And we also notice that on into many of these chapters, I think specifically, and I could, don't check me on this, I think they're somewhere in the neighborhood of 13, 14, 15 times in the book of Acts where it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Generally, another thing don't check me on, but only about four of those, because other words are used, only four of those refer to the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, being baptized with the Holy Spirit is a synonym of being filled with the Holy Spirit. But there are some people that were filled with the Holy Spirit that weren't baptized with the Holy Spirit. There were people even, there were people who were even not even believers, but it says the Holy Spirit came upon them or filled them and they spoke something. You might think, well, I never heard of that. Listen about the rattiest guy I could think of that spoke by it, the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says, was Caiaphas, the high priest, in a meeting where he was trying to figure out how they could kill Jesus. Okay? And in that meeting, probably not a good guy, trying to kill the Son of God, he said, you don't know anything. You don't realize that one man has to die and not the whole nation. One man has to die for the nation. John is where it's recorded. He said he did not speak this of himself. But because he was high priest, merely because of his office, he spoke these words through the Holy Spirit. So you can be filled with the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose and not even be a believer. And on the road to hell but baptized with the Holy Spirit is what cleanses your heart. And then we find the disciples, the apostles, who we know were baptized, repeatedly referred to as Peter was called, Peter and John were called before the Sanhedrin. It says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, we ought to obey God rather than you guys. Okay? Well, the word filled there 
and clear up into Paul's writings, Ephesus. He said, don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know what the words filled there? Earlier, you see the places where they're baptized or filled, and those are that kind of a word. The other places where, and the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, or Ephesians, don't be drunk, be filled with the Spirit, is present tense. I mean, it's continual. It's ongoing. It's a continual keeping full of the Spirit. So that the idea then that we get sort of a package of the Holy Spirit and then we're free to live our lives and we've always got the power. No, you don't. Not unless you walk with Jesus closely, listen to the still small voice and let the Holy Spirit train us in his moods, his spirit, checking us, don't say that, don't do this, giving us a sense sometimes of apprehension, don't sign that contract. The Holy Spirit's day-to-day, moment-by-moment guidance. We learn because of the continual maintaining of the fullness of the Holy Spirit what it means to, f- to follow the Spirit. And you have through the rest of the book of Acts, you have that played out. The Spirit's told Peter, three guys are going to come to your door, knock, they're Gentiles. Don't let that bother you. You go with them, don't ask any questions. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit talks to Cornelius and says, send three guys down to the seashore. There's a guy named Peter there. That's, that's the life, which is honestly... I know that life is not always just one huge grin, but to have the Holy Spirit here and to know that God is guiding you and leading you and prompting you, that's an exciting life. Rewarding life. Peaceful, joyful life. That's what we can have and what God wants each of us to have by pouring out His Spirit in our individual hearts, giving us power, purity, and a purpose, which is to live for God and for His kingdom. We've got to quit. Let's bow our heads for prayer. (coughs) Father in heaven, thank you for this very day that we can mark recorded in your word of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit not just on those people there 120 in a room in Jerusalem but on you said on all humanity on all mankind on all flesh that includes us remind us too Lord if we do not know today the experience of asking you to give us your spirit to fill our hearts and to cleanse us from the inner double-mindedness resulting from the old sinful nature that fights against the new direction of our life with Christ. Help us pray that prayer and ask, as Jesus said, you know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Help us, Lord, even in the hours and the days ahead, if we know that we lack that, to ask in simple faith and trust your promise. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the Holy Spirit to abide in our hearts. Go with us, I pray, with just a sense of love, faith, trust in you that we'll walk with you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.